Hey friends, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender, and unfortunately, I was unable to be part of the episode you're about to hear. But of course, my co-host, John Gomes, does a brilliant job interviewing our guest, Scottish tennis coach, Leon Smith. Leon started his career as a club-level coach in 1994, and in 1998, he switched his focus to coaching elite players, including Andy Murray, who he remains close friends with to this day. For the last decade, Leon has been the Great Britain Davis Cup captain, and in 2015, he led the team to becoming world champions for the first time in 79 years. In 2016, Leon was honored with an OBE for his services to the game. In the first of these two episodes, Leon speaks to John about what he's learned about leadership since starting coaching at just 18 years of age. So um, when, when I first met you, uh, you know, two things struck me. Um, you know, obviously, you're an incredibly good-looking chap. <laughs> and you've also got this kind of uh, voice that is like a slightly more animated um, Andy Murray as well. So when, when, people, when I heard you, I heard you talking before I saw you, and I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> Do you ever get that? Yes, uh, the dulcet tones. I think that's why I've been put on some radio commentary matches rather than TV, is that I can talk, <laughs> and you can talk more on radio. And maybe there seems to be a lot of Scottish voices on radio, actually, so maybe it's something to do with that. Yeah, it's very, it's nice, and reassuring, good for a podcast. It's changed a lot. There was a, there was much more Glaswegian in it before. Yeah, but travelling allows that to soften. Well, you have to do a lot of television as well, don't you? Yes. I, I was with a client the other day, and we were in a bar, and uh, you came up, and there and there was this cheer, and I was thinking, do I tell them that you know, <laughs> I know you? And I was because you know you, you've got to match your ego sometimes. But yeah, I did. I told them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah perfect. Yeah. Good. That's it. <laughs> But you, it was the Davis Cup, so you've just come back from that. Um, how was that this year? Uh, it was interesting because it was a new format. So uh, we get very settled in our way in, in Davis Cup over the years where it's been a traditional format of home and away matches. This time, uh, Gerard Piquet, famous Barcelona footballer, uh, has a company that, called Cosmos that came in and bought the rights for it and decided to create a more of a World Cup of tennis, something that the fans could get more relatable, uh, so we moved with it and open-minded, and we enjoyed the experience. It was 18 teams brought into Madrid to play for one week, group stages, into quarterfinals, into semifinals and beyond. We got to semifinals, which I think was probably slightly exceeding expectations because we had no Andy Murray through injury. Uh, he played a small part, but unfortunately a, an injury meant that after the first day he couldn't play anymore, but we had... Uh, a great team, Dan Evans leading the way on the singles. Kyle Edmund played terrifically well. And a doubles team in Jamie Murray and his brother in Neil Skupski, who had formed a partnership early in the year, played outstanding tennis. And we lost uh, eventually to the winners, Spain, and inspired Rafa Nadal. Not easy to play against him in front of 12,500 uh, Spanish fans. Uh, and the King of Spain, no less as well, in attendance. Um, but it was, it, was, it was good. It was a good experience. I think, uh, again, learned a lot from it. Uh, learned a lot from a new environment, a new format. Uh, but I think overall we should be proud of what we achieved, actually. Mm. So what this, this series of podcasts is about leadership. And uh, what, what's interesting is that you have done something in the Davis Cup that hasn't been done uh, in recent times, 
um, in terms of getting success and winning. And you did that from a, uh, a very interesting place because you, uh, you, you came in and shook things up in quite a, a significant way. So I, I'm really interested to, to kind of get a sense, firstly, of you as a person. Um, what do you think the things are that have forged you as a, as a leader? Somebody prepared to do that, see the situation and take the bold decisions to make things happen. Just if, if you were kind of thinking about you know, talking to your children in the future about you and why you became the man you are, what would you say? No, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's, what's my gut answer to that? There's a few things with it. I think I've been very fortunate. I've been around some very good people when I was young. And I probably didn't have a huge amount of direction of where I was going to go with my career because you know, I would have had a false notion of being a pro tennis player, but wasn't good enough or maybe not enough opportunities. Probably in the first instance, not a good enough player. Um, and then from an academic side of things, I didn't put enough effort into it um, because probably I thought I was going to be a tennis player. Then I was left with tennis coaching, but I loved it. And I fell into uh, an environment where I got some really important mentoring early on from actually someone ended up being a big part of my life. It was Andy Murray's mother, Judy, uh, who was a Scottish national coach at the time. And she impressed upon me some core values, which I, I, I swear I've never left, um, no matter who or what level of player we work with. I always found her work ethic was amazing. She, would, she was everywhere. And... Uh, Managed to do things on pretty much a shoestring budget as well. So made things, made a maximum impact where she could on, on quite little resources. Uh, always managed to uh, forge the work ethic with fun. Always fun. Everything was always, people were always motivated through, through both, the, both the hard work but also the fun element. And I think it's often quite difficult to bring those two elements together. Um, and then attention to detail, which doesn't have to be in everyone's faces, but it was done behind the scenes. Um, and it's, it's, it's probably those three areas I've tried to keep at the forefront is the fun, hard work, planning. Um, but then as time's gone on, I think one of the things, uh, and I keep actually saying this to my children, I remember having a conversation with my eldest actually just the other week, it's about how you are, how you be. And, and that's something that there's so many new, whether it's, look, in, in my world, it could be uh, technology has come to the forefront. So we get a lot more analysis, a lot more detail about our opponents, about ourselves, it could be the equipment. Um, but when you strip it all back, how I am with someone, how I talk to someone, hopefully how I make someone feel, how you make someone believe in what you're doing, uh, how you communicate, how you how you make decisions, then how you tell someone a decision. The communication side, I think, is is so big and it's quite a difficult art form to grasp and to to be taught. Mm. I think you have to go through things and that's I that's something I've learned. I've I've always I've tried to keep the work ethic, I've tried to keep the fun element, I've kept the detailed planning, but over the last decade I think I've really improved how to how to be and how to speak and how to articulate and how to bring people on a journey, I hope. So you're in a, an environment that's constantly 
uh, under a huge amount of pressure, a lot of emotions running high all the time. And you're doing something you care about and the players care about and the fans care about. So, you know, there's a lot of huge energy around that, but there must be tons of conflict. And every leader is shaped by the environment they create around themselves emotionally. So we've talked about this quite a lot over the years since I've got to know you. And you seem to be somebody that is um, really focused on that in creating a, a, a positive environment in the face of things that push you back. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've come to develop that as an ability? Uh, I think a lot of it comes from what motivates you when you walk into a room, a place of work. Um, I know that from experience, people have performed to a much better level when they're in a great headspace. So I could give you numerous examples of being at major events, high-pressure events, and you learn from mistakes, for sure, and I've focused too much on the tennis side, the tennis aspect. That could be how someone's hitting the ball, or more importantly, maybe the tactical side of things, game plans, and I've lost sight of the person. Um, and then you realize, okay, what is it that the environment can bring? How can I get this person in the correct headspace? How can I make them feel that they're ready to go out and perform? And that comes from the person first, performer first, tennis player second. Um, so when I think about that, I've always ensured that when, when people are coming along for a, a Davis Cup week, or it could be the Olympics weeks, the ones that we, that, that we run, is that first and foremost, it's a, it's a very positive environment. Uh, there is a fun element. There is a culture of supporting each other. Um, and we've developed these values and behavioral aspects over a period of time. We've always known we wanted them, but then you have to figure out which ones you can actually live and breathe daily. And then we plaster it everywhere. And we, then we live and breathe it. People see it, whether it's subtle things like imagery on the, our team walls, locker room. They have a some photos are leaving their, their, their hotel rooms themselves before they get there, so they walk in and see themselves displaying some of those values. That could be, like I say, supporting each other. What does that look like? What does it feel like? Uh, bravery. You, know, you have to be brave when you walk out to perform. You have to be brave either in an offensive situation or in a defensive situation. You have to put your body on the line or you have to be prepared to hit the ball big when you might not feel like doing it. Um, so it's making sure that the people are, are ready to perform in a certain way. And that comes from early on understanding who to surround myself with. Um, you know, some teams or businesses maybe can afford, you know, we, we had quite, quite good resources in our federation, the LTA, that I could have surrounded myself with quite high-end international coaches. Um, but actually when I was assembling my support team, I really wanted people that were going to bring those values, those behavioural aspects, um, and sometimes the lack of experience or, or high-end credibility was actually trumped by having people with the right values, the right behavioural aspects, and when players came in, they could see it and feel it. Um, and that was one of the first things that, that I did was search for the right characters, because players will come and go. The, the, play, the team will change, obviously, as years go on, players come in and out of the team. But if you have your support team uh, as a core group, that have the same values and behaviours that you wanted to go on a long journey, then and that's what we did. 
So how do you, when you get triggered and, and you, uh, you find yourself frustrated or angry or judgmental, how do you cope with that? How do you manage that in those high pressure situations? Uh, I think it's interesting. It's still something that I would say I've got to keep developing in different, in different environments, in different scenarios. I think I've actually got one of my strengths, I think, is, is at the highest pressure end of it where it's very visible and when people are really counting on you, I think that's where I've got really good at controlling everything, centering myself. Like when I'm sitting in Davis Cup moments, Davis Cup chair, the player that you're there to support um, that's going to sit with you at the end changes and is going to be looking at you after every single point, pretty much, they need to see a certain behavioural aspect and you if they see you once tut or make a gesture, if they've made if they've missed a an important shot, if they catch you, then that confidence and that will trigger them. So it's very important that you remain centered and that's something that uh people often say, Oh you look so calm when you're sitting there. I don't feel calm, but I'm I'm getting myself centered. And I'm, a, I'm aware of what the other person needs at that moment. And when they come in to speak to me that I've got my thoughts together, that I'm, I don't want to say too much, but what I say needs to be reassuring for them or it needs to be something that motivates them, but it needs to make sense. So I need to be in a calm space to be able to deliver that message and they need to see calm. And, and also to have your radar up that you are aware of what people need at a certain time. Now I'm relating this to the match court, but that could be in anything, it could be in training, it could be off court. But during the match itself, the highest pressure situation, if you, you've got to have your radar up because at some point they'll want to see you jump up and go with them, really pumping your face, shouting at them. Other times they need you to see you calm and it's just making sure that you're in tune with that. And that's where you know, to have long spells of concentration during some matches have been five hours of sat there and you need to play the tune of what's been going on and know what notes to hit at the right time. And that's that, I think, comes with a bit of experience of knowing how to centre and stay with your radar up. So the players watch themselves. Do you ever watch yourself in that way? Do you, do you get a sense of you know, how you're performing? Uh, I sometimes watch it back, but you're mostly fixated on what's happening during the points themselves. I think I also rely on others just to... To, to prod as well. I think um, I ask for feedback a lot and I think it's something that's important. I mean, often, with certainly with the player, the playing team, after each tie, I've always asked for feedback on, you know, what's gone well, um, what they feel we could look to improve for the next time. That includes myself as well, how I have been with them. And, you know, a decade in, I'm still learning from certain individuals what they need, what makes them tick. Um, Yes, there's certain things that we operate as a team, but you still got to look at what individuals need moving forwards. I've got a very experienced member in the support team that I brought in on purpose 10 years ago. Uh, he's well into his 60s. I won't say how far into his 60s, but he's one of the most experienced coaches in world tennis. Um, and he is someone that, because he's got a lot of experience, uh, he's not shy to offer his feedback to me and I've always gives a green light to let me know how a pre-match talk went, how we felt it was in the chair, what we could have done, done, done differently and I needed someone that had 
been through a lot more than me to be able to offer that, that feedback, and he certainly does that. Hi, producer Phil here. If you're enjoying the Evolving Leader podcast, then please do subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram so you catch all future episodes. Now, let's get back to the show. Let's just talk about feedback for a moment, because in business, feedback always is not regarded as in, in a positive light. We talk about it as a learning, you know, the, the gift of feedback and, and so on, but people generally regard it as, you know, completely the opposite. Um, it's essential in sport to learn and to grow and to actually identify the areas where you're going to improve. Um, as a coach, as a, some, as a leader in, in sport, getting feedback obviously is critically important. What have you learned about your ability to, to be truly open to it as opposed to filtering out the bits you want to hear, self-justifying the bits you don't or ignoring them? Have you learned to kind of truly listen to what people are saying and to be able to see it in its widest context? I think it's uh, it's interesting. I think it it's changes over the course of time and where you're at with your career, I think. Um, I think when I first got a leadership role, which was Davis Cup captaincy and, and also running men's tennis in, in the UK, um, I was a bit of a left field choice. So I would say my confidence, my ambition was really high, but my confidence wasn't there with it because your credibility wasn't matching the position. Uh, therefore, I think you naturally, well, I certainly felt very open. I needed help. I needed to get people to let me know what I was doing, um, give me advice as much as possible, help mould me into that, that leader as well with some of the natural things that I probably had while I was given it in the first place. Um, and then with success... Maybe you go a little bit too fast and the show is going really quickly and your credibility is growing. And if I look back maybe sort of five years ago, I think I actually maybe narrowed my mindset a little bit too much because things were going really well. But I think things were going well because I was so open beforehand and I'd listened, taken on the right advice, brought the right people in um, and oiled the machine in a certain way that the processes were really good. Then we won Davis Cup and it was great. But I think at that point, yeah, maybe you do shut out a little bit of outside feedback. No, no, it's going fine. I'm all right, actually. But things have to progress. Because you struck the formula. I think that's what it felt like. But actually, it doesn't just stop there. You, there's, there's so many other areas of our sport that we're going to affect, or players, coaches, that um, I learned. After, but after that, your feelings change because... The ambition doesn't stop, but the your internal search for recognition is less. I don't feel the need for people to say, "Oh, I'm doing a great." I don't need as many pats on the back. I don't. You don't search for that as much as when you're coming up. Mm. But it doesn't mean the ambition stops or your will, your your work ethic. But it's different because, the, and then you go back to that wanting to learn. How can I get better? Uh, how can we improve in, in those areas? Um, I feel way more open now. So we talked about you know, how do you meet the needs of the people around you and, and being positive and open. But you have to also have 
quite a few difficult conversations with people as well when they're not going to get what they want or you're going to tell them something they don't want to hear. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about having difficult conversations. Uh, I think it's one of the steepest learning curves um, I could have had, actually. I had a limited knowledge on selections or difficult conversations through selections. In sports, often around selections. That could be into a team. It could be uh, given an opportunity into a bigger event through a wild card. It could be funding, whatever it could be. But it was pretty limited to younger players where maybe the stakes are less high when it comes to Davis Cup or events like Wimbledon or Queens, which are big events for players. You had to learn and, and uh, it freaked me out at the start and gave me a huge amount of sleepless nights, huge amount of sleepless nights thinking about how am I going to tell someone this news? What does that mean to the relationship moving forwards? How is it going to cope? How are we going to bounce back? Um, but but looking back now, um, you have to go through them. I, I'm, there's absolutely a need for training in this area. There's absolutely a need because it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And you need um, some techniques to help you through it. And one of the, the things I learned over time was certainly taking scripts, preparing. That might, this, the conversation might only last 30 seconds. 60 seconds, but it's a really, really important 30 to 60 seconds coming up when it's someone that you're going to need to rely upon in the future um, for people to recognise um, the culture of the team moving forwards, um, that you're doing things for the good of the team. So to nail down 30 seconds, 60 seconds is important. And for that, I started writing a script to help um, I don't know how much of the scripts I've actually used, but it was a fallback. Um, and it's done in different ways. Obviously, a face-to-face -face is still the best way by a country mile. Um, um, but, but, but then you can't sit with a script. A phone call, you've got it there by the side of you that you can refer to and just glance over in case the path uh, deviates from where you thought it was going. Um, but I also think with difficult conversations, um, as much as it feels like it's a, we automatically actually, when I'm talking about this, start thinking about negative decisions. There's a lot of good decisions, but they're, they're, they're easy. If I'm telling someone they're, they're playing or they're getting X, Y, and Z, they're, they're brilliant. They're easy conversations. Of course, it's the ones that you're saying you're not playing or you're not selected. Those are the ones that, that you need to prepare really well for. Um, but over time, what I've learned, it's a bit like, um, banking credits, that's what it feels like, and, and in an absolute genuine way, not in a false, in an absolute genuine way, if you've spent a lot of time with someone and you're displaying that care for them, you genuinely want them to do well. People will know when you want them to do well, and it's not just for, the, for what I will get out of it um, or what credit I'll get. It's not. It's for them, and they'll know. People are savvy enough to know that you care about them. And that's what we've always tried to do, put enough credits in the bank by being around them, watching them play, going the extra mile to, to be around their practice sessions, um, sending them messages, random things in my world. We live, obviously, tennis, global sport, different time zones. I'll make sure I'm watching matches at obscene early hours 
in the morning. So when they finish their match and I'm at home having watched them play, whether it's in Asia or anything else, they get a message from me and I'll replay some of the matches they've just set and they'll know I've watched and they'll know I've been up at three or four in the morning. It's things that then you're just constantly doing these banking of credits. So when it comes to that difficult conversation, I can look the person in the eye and say, look, you know, this is very difficult. Um, you know, I care about you, but I've got to do this and it's only for the good of the team. And I present the facts that I've scripted before, the reasons why, honestly, the reasons why. Um, and that's it. And that's it. And then we move on and hopefully, yes, I know in reality that that relationship will take a bit of a hit. Of course it will. You just delivered some pretty horrible news. But then it's not going to go to rock bottom because you've built up enough, but then you've got to go some TLC as well. You can't just leave that person because, yes, you've got to focus on something now because you've picked a team, but I've got to go back to that person. I'll need them again and they'll need me again. So then I go about building it back up again until the next conversation. And what about um, when, not just giving bad news, but when you've got to puncture somebody's illusion? when they, they're just, their lack of awareness or their lack of acceptance of something that's happening, either their attitude mm. or their lack of preparation or something like that, which they're not in real acceptance of. Tell me a little bit about how you, you try and get people to deal in reality. Yeah, and, and you know, in my world, the, the players will always, it's an individual sport at the end of the day. So they're going to think about themselves. There is going to be me, myself, and I. And I, I totally get that and respect that. Um, and when you're having to bring some reality to someone, you're also not wanting to burst their bubble. Because I'm sure in any industry, but in sport and in, in tennis, confidence is really important. Things like, And you don't want to burst that. And I don't want to take someone off the path they're on. But at the same time, you have to understand that we are here as a team and we've got to make those right decisions. So in that case where I have to bring reality, I've got to get my facts right. I've got to get my facts right. And that's where um, it could be, for example, that a certain player thinks, for sure I'm in the team. For sure. They can't see that I might pick someone else because of surface or because of a certain matchup against our opponents might work better than their game style. They're not going to see that. They're going to see themselves as the best option. I've got to tell them in a, in a calm, factual way why I'm going with a certain player. And I've done that before and I've done it in possibly the biggest moments we've had is, is in a Davis Cup final. I had to make a very dis difficult decision on not playing a very experienced player. And actually I gave someone that never played Davis Cup before an opportunity to play in the final. That's where I need fact-based approach because if you deal in facts you're not bursting their confidence do you find yourself sometimes lapsing into the more kind of opinion story-based thing i mean you know if you don't prepare do you ever find yourself falling into that habit of of acting against your process because this sounds like a you know a, a well-honed uh, approach to dealing with people so that they they can't argue with with that. I mean, they don't like it necessarily all the time, but it, they know at the end of the day that you've done the work. 
do you find yourself lapsing at times and, and going more to the opinion side of things? Or have you managed to really get that enshrined in your approach? I think, uh, I think now I've managed. I think the fact that I do genuinely care about the people. I really want them to do well. Like really, really want anyone that, that, that's playing, not just for a team, but playing British, to, I want them to have a successful career. Um, and I think they know that. Therefore, I really, I probably overthink decisions. Um, but I think it's probably quite good that I do that because um, we're not talking about a huge amount of players here. You know, there's like six, seven, eight of them that are vying for a team of four or five. But I want to keep everyone on, on the right plane, the right path, the right feeling. And I really overthink it. I, I talk to so many people before having a conversation or making a final decision. Um, I think I wouldn't like to be that person that just snapshot makes a decision and that's it because that going through that thought process I think it allows you to explore all the avenues and actually get your script right and get get the real reasons of why you're making that decision and I'll continue to do that mm. I did it you know that's just five six weeks ago for our last Davis Cup you know I had to tell someone that's 50 in the world that's a good level very good level. And five years ago, I'd have bitten their hand off to have someone fifth in the world in our team. You know, I had to tell them they're not in the team, you know, because the strength and depth's gone up, which is great. But you're telling someone that's very successful still, they're not in. And if I just went on opinion and said, I just, that's how I feel, there's no way that relationships, it shouldn't be. They deserve a lot more than that. They deserve a, a real reasons. They need to know that, you know, I went and traveled before making that decision to uh, to China, to uh, Switzerland, to Paris, watching the player and the other players to make sure I had a, a really good overview of where they're at and what was the right decision for the team um, before making it. And then they know that I've been there. They know that I've been there watching and making the effort to go. So it makes it, I think, a damn sight easier and for them to stomach a decision when that happens. We hope that you found this episode valuable and that you'll join John for part two of his conversation with Leon as they discuss some of his greatest leadership lessons so far. Until then, remember, the world is evolving. Are you?